You're listening to Revolutionary Mystic, a subversive spirituality podcast where witches of color are disrupting, dismantling, and decolonizing mainstream spirituality with intersectional feminism, ancestral magic, and revolutionary thought. One unapologetic, real talk conversation at a time. Featuring your host, international psychic medium, hoodoo root worker, and astrologer, Megan Alexandria. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of the Revolutionary Mystic Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Alexandria. Today I have joining me the privilege and honor of chatting with our guest, Mohawk the Educator, (laughs) somebody that I met like a while back through a friend and have followed on social media because I love their work. They do lots of really cool stuff relating to harm reduction and drug policy and educating folks out on the streets. And so anyways, hi, Mohawk. Can you tell us about who you are, your identities, your pronouns, and what it is that you do? Yeah. So as you said, I'm Mohawk the Educator or you know Mohawk Green. A lot of the work that I do is around nightlife harm reduction or just, you know, harm reduction as it concerns the users of psychoactive substances. A lot of what I started to do was kind of revolving around Dance Safe, which is a 501c nonprofit that would bring like health and safety information and resources around drug use and any other use that might concern individuals who are, you know, in nightlife settings like festivals or raves or really anywhere where people are kind of like enjoying music and potentially engaging in recreational drug use, potentially engaging in sexual activity and things of that nature. Um, And through that organization, you know, we basically will have booths, like set up a table on site and we do things like drug checking. If it's, you know, if it's allowed, we'll do things like drug checking, which kind of helps analyze the contents of someone's drugs that they have. You know, we give information out about these various drugs. You know, a lot of times people just have no idea what they're getting into. We also sell the drug checking kits and hand out earplugs, condoms, lubes, really really anything that kind of promotes safety and helps those individuals make informed choices about anything that they might be engaged in, whether they're using substances or not. But even before my involvement with Dance Safe, I was doing a lot of harm reduction work Uh, just kind of out of my own personal experiences, because, you know, like many people on this planet, I I use drugs and at some point had a a more problematic relationship with drugs and didn't really understand how it impacted my body or my mind and all these various things, you know, that obviously can, can affect how you exist in this world, you know, mentally and everything else. So in kind of like discovering myself in like, catering, you know, kind of changing my habits and whatnot, decided, you know, there's really no one who was there giving me this information. So I felt compelled to basically do research or take things that I've learned, you know, either through experience or, you know, from hearing about it or learning about it through what whatever mediums, you know, take this information and, and be able to spread, you know, spread the word and do the outreach to offer that to other people, especially when you consider 
you know, there are a lot of uh, marginalized communities that don't have access to this type of information. And, you know, that's, that impacts a lot of people. It's yeah. so, you know, and besides all of that work, I forgot to uh, mention my pronouns. I, I go uh, by they, them, and, you know, I'm also non-binary. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically it. You know, I, I was a, a heavy partier at some point in my early adulthood, and now just kind of feel like I have a, a bigger role to play in these spaces. Yeah, it's, it's a super important role, I think, um, in a lot of ways, because you're right, like, a lot of these things, like, marginalized folks really don't have access to, and I would even venture to guess that even like more privileged folks like don't really have knowledge of these types of things either, because these aren't the the conversations that are like had in the dominant narrative or, you know, across like mainstream education or anything like that, because we live, you know, as Americans, we live in a culture where, you know, drugs are bad and everything's illegal. And um, there's a lot of stigma that comes with drug use, whether it's, you know, in a way that's harmful and, you know, people that struggle with addiction, we have a lot of stigma and um, shaming that goes with that and in our culture. And then even for folks who, you know, recreationally use drugs too, like there's a lot of stigma attached to that. And so I feel like there's a lot of like misinformation and misunderstanding and also just like straight up like lack of information. Like I can't even think of like, you know, beyond what we were told outside of, you know, programs like dare or whatever, it was basically just like, don't do this. You know, this is bad. (laughs) Yeah. And then like, you know, kind of piggybacking off that on that note, you know, like with that lack of information or even sometimes not even a lack of information, sometimes it's like outright, lies and, you know, false information, you know, scare tactics, things of that nature. And, you know, you're right, like there's all sorts of groups, you know, whether they they are considered like privileged or not, that just the information is very conflicting in a lot of cases, even if, you know, you're trying to seek it out, a lot of information is conflicting um, because you have people who, you know, even within the, the, the group of, you know, people who use drugs, you know, you have people who still have these preferences, these biases. It's very hard to to kind of be in the middle of that, you know, being non-judgmental, being almost like sort of centrist in a manner where you, you kind of respect everyone's form of drug use. You know, there's this idea that certain drugs are bad because they cause addiction. And a lot of people's definition of addiction is very skewed. A lot of people's definition of sobriety is very skewed, you know, it's because of all of these systems that have been in place, you know, telling us that these drugs are bad or that this is what causes addiction or this is how addiction works. And, you know, all this like stigma and devaluing of people just because they use drugs or use certain drugs or whatever, you know, that's pretty rampant even within the community itself. And it's kind of part of why I wanted to have this talk this you know on this day you know it's Sunday October thirteenth it's the end of the Horizons Psychedelics Conference here in New York City so a lot of people from all over the world were here um, to talk about all this research and other academic um, topics around psychedelics research and you know psychedelics like medicinal psychedelics movement and all this kind of thing I wasn't personally involved with that conference but 
I have a lot of friends and colleagues and different folks who attend the conference or speak at the conference. And, you know, I felt like, oh, well, what a great time to have a conversation about drugs on a weekend that's very focused around certain types of drug use. And, you know, a part of the reason why I don't tend to engage that much with that conference is because it's largely, you know, white, cis, hetero, male dominated. Oh, yeah. And it's very uncomfortable for me to be there. Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a, in case folks, you know, who cannot see me visually need any sort of description. I am not white. I'm not cis. I am not male. Right. <laughs> you know, and I'm very queer. So I'm very different from these people in the sense that, yes, we have very uh, similar ideologies around drug use. In some cases, not even in all cases, like I said, some people still within this community have, have very conflicting views. But, you know, even in that space, it's very hard to engage in some of this this activism and this work just because of other differences that I know I'm not the only person who feels this way. You yeah. know, there are lots of barriers for many people, whether they're people in this community who, you know, I mean, because of it being kind of like cis male dominated and all of that, has been people in this community have had issues with like, you know, consent problems amongst these groups. There's been, mm. you know, like far right wingers in these groups. It's been, it's just a whole well, myriad of just different personalities. And it's, it's, there's some amount of collaborating and mingling I'm willing to do. But also outside of that, I, you know, I try to recognize that this is not always the safest space for me to be or to get my message across in, in those who might align with my message. You know, so I'm very thankful to have like a different platform to speak about this. Well, hell yeah. Like in, in a lot of ways, folks like you and I, like we have to create our own platforms a lot of times. And I'm imagining this conference, like I, I've, this is the first time I've ever heard of this conference, but I can imagine, I know exactly, you know, what type of energetic group you're speaking of. You know, it's probably a bunch of cishet white dudes that, you know, are like, tech industry adjacent, you know, they probably are like, you know, into Joe Rogan and stuff like that. Like I've, I'm familiar. Very similar. (laughs) Yeah. I'm familiar with that. And you know, what's most frustrating about that is their attitude. They, they don't realize that it was colonialism, like, you know, colonial mentality that has created all of these issues around the substances. And so you know, and knowing that like all of these things that they think are like up and coming or like new, it's like, no, dude, like that's indigenous wisdom and knowledge. That's ancestral. Like that's right. That's shit that like, you know, mine and your ancestors, like, you know, maybe didn't have like the scientific language for, but like exactly we've been using it medicinally for fucking ever. And, you know, yeah. they're over there having their big conference essentially like Columbusing our medicine. And so I don't fucking blame you for not wanting to, <laughs> <laughs> you yes. know, participate so, in that. Yes. And that's exactly why I did. Right. And that's exactly why I did want to have this conversation because that's basically how I feel, not just about the Horizons Conference itself, but a lot of these conferences. That's just the nature of the space. You know, like you said, it's basically like it's all been Columbus, <laughs> you know, and I want, and, I, and you know, it's also re- relevant to. You know, since we're talking about drug use and yes, in some ways 
it's some of it's focused on psychedelic drug use as medicine, but lots of things have come from drug, you know, lots of different drugs have been used medicinally or recreationally historically. And at the beginning of this month, you know, I, I did some research and did a presentation. I have, had been doing these monthly talks about, you know, different topics around the, you know, around drug use in different contexts. And this month was about basically being able to say, hey, listen, we are, we're having these conversations about psychedelics and the way that we're referencing the psychedelic use or even the, the model of the, the kind of modeling psychedelic use after a lot of these indigenous communities, you know, that this colonialism of um, the colonialism that had created this issue in the first place really stripped themselves of having access to a lot of the same stuff that they're now co-opting from these indigenous communities today or, you know, within the last, you know, 60 or 70 years or whatever. So, you know, what this month's topic was focused on is like, what did drug use look like, whether that was medicinal or recreational or whatever, what did drug use look like kind of in the, the Middle Ages and like the Renaissance era, which is like roughly like 500 AD to like 16 or 1700 AD. So basically, you know, a little bit before the U.S. was kind of, you know, colonized and, and formed and all of that and more kind of what was leading up to like after after like this, the Iron Age and the Stone Age and all that kind of stuff. But basically, like, what did that look like in Europe or, you know, the area that would be considered Europe today and parts of the Near East in that time, which would be like Egypt, Turkey, and kind of like that Middle Eastern, like Caucasian region there. Um, because that's a lot of, you know, that's where a lot of, a lot of that started, I guess, in a sense, you know, a lot of the trading and the colonialism, all of that started kind of there between various holy wars and opium wars and other things. So, you know, in doing that research, I was basically able to find in a lot of places, you know, including like Spain or whatever, as far back as like the Stone Age, people were using psilocybin mushrooms already. There were cave paintings of like mushrooms, you know, in multiple archaeological like locations where they're able to like get a sense of the culture from what they were finding. You know, they were, you know, able to like scrape artifacts and see what kind of residues were on them. They were using drugs. They were all using many of the drugs that we hail today as these medicines. So like they were using them back then. Mm -hmm. But basically what was starting to happen is different rulers, many of which were religious, especially in like Europe, you know, they had the queens and all of that. They basically, the church would start to regulate basically what people could do. So it's like these first forms of prohibition, you know, started to happen there and in their society where they were already using things like mushrooms or uh, henbane or mandrake or datura or belladonna or cannabis or blue lotus lilies and, and even henbane, which I'm sorry, henbane, harmal, which is considered like the, the sister plant to ayahuasca. Like all these things existed there and were being used there. But then at some point, some ruler, you know, some governing body of some sort was like, hey, we think that this is a problem. For whatever reason, like, we think it's a problem. We're going to regulate it. You know, we're going to, you know, chop off people's lips and do all these barbaric things or whatever to try to stop this. And then at the same time, you know, or to try to regulate the trade of it, to try to capitalize its use. And this is as far back as, you know, bef well before any kind of, you know, U.S. colonialism of, of any sort. This is before 
we, you know, were all, they were all crossing all these oceans and seeing these South American tribes and these Central American tribes all before that. They already were starting to create these prohibition, create this type of prohibition or create these types of like trade sanctions that said, okay, you know, we're going to start smuggling opium around or, you know, banning this type of thing so that we can leverage this type of thing. So it was already becoming chaotic in societies that, you know, you would consider kind of like, you know, white yeah. in a way. And it's like, hey, y'all had this stuff too. Y'all had it. Y'all ruined it for yourself, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but you had it. And I wish that we had these conversations about more than just the indigenous cultures that, that do it, because yes, they're, they're still practice it, practicing it today, which is why well, I can see why it's relevant, but there's still just not enough historical context, you know? And even though we are acknowledging to a degree that a lot of this is being inspired by or derived from indigenous practices, we're just not, we're just really exploiting a lot of that. Oh, hell yeah. Um, hell yeah. And so it's very upsetting to be in these spaces where people are just so tone deaf to even the things that they're talking about. And, you know, a lot of times there's this psychedelic exceptionalism where they think that these these plant medicines can do no wrong. Oh, yeah, because like, well, it's a plant. Have you heard of? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, well, I don't know if you've heard of, you know, things like Datura or even if you feel like that's way too extreme. But there are even incidents with stuff like Iboga, you know, Ibogaine. Like, these are still things that have risks. You know, they still have just because they can be used in a medicinal context or a therapeutic context doesn't mean that there's zero risk. Just because they come from the earth does not mean that there's zero risk or even from an animal. I mean, I don't, I don't know why anybody would think that there's, that the earth, you know, or that our environment, like nature can do no harm. have Have you ever been bitten by a venomous snake or spider? There's so many things in nature that will kill us. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how can anyone make these claims like, oh, this is far superior than this thing that we synthesize? Like, well, sometimes the synthesis the synthesis has a purpose. Like I'm not saying that we did everything right as humans, but and this there becomes these arbitrary distinctions between natural versus synthetic and you know, psychedelic versus stimulant or opioid or whatever. And I'm just like, look, it's all it's you know as the very generic phrase goes, different strokes for different folks. And all of these things have very legitimate uses, you know, for the most part. I mean, sure, there's some chemicals we could totally do without, but most of most of those ones that I feel we could totally do without have spun out of um, everything being illicit. And because these things are illicit, people are just making shit up. They're just making shit up to try to get it as close to something else as possible or just making shit up to try to just sell it as something. Well, yeah. You know, like... Hey, here's a new drug. Um, we don't know what it does. We've done zero research, but here's a new drug. Good luck. You know, give us money oh, for yeah. this new chemical that's not yet banned. And so there's just a lot of there's a lot of things happening at once. And you know, being in harm reduction, you know, either harm reduction gets really focused on opioid use, which is fine. Like obviously, like you know, the type of work that I do is also going to revolve around some level of opioid use. But like it's so catered to opioid use or injection use, but you know both of which are just very very high risk populations, you know that it really does demand its own kind of initiative. Yeah. And while I work alongside with those types of people, often it's very different from kind of addressing the broader scope of drug use. You know, yes, there's 
lots of non-addicted people yeah. who use drugs, you know? Well, um, and like, I, I just want people to understand. Cause I, I think that's like the piece that people are missing is like a lot of these things that we are perceiving as like bad parts or, you know, issues or problems within our society. Cause I know a lot of folks at home listening are like, oh yeah, as soon as you said opioid, I'm sure they're like, oh, the opioid crisis. But I'm like, hey, yo, like check it out. Like colonialism created that. Capitalism created that. And guess who benefits off of it being a crisis? Capitalism. So like, you know, the stigma. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, it's- we went into an entire war. And by we, I, I mean like British you know, colonial like um, folks, they... I mean, they went into a whole war. Over, they were still in a war over this stuff. You know, like like I said, some of it was kind of like trade and money oriented. Like we, you know, they, the British went into war with China. I mean, if you just Google opium war, like literally just like, we want this opium. Like, what the fuck, y'all? Give us this opium. Like, we want this cannabis. We want these things. So we're going to destroy you and have our way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, and like... I mean, like, even, like, in the pharmaceutical industry, like, in today, you know, because I know, like, that's the thing across the nation. It's why, like, as a person, like, I have chronic pain. It's, like, a medical condition that I have. They, I have zero, like, history of, quote, unquote, opiate, you know, opiate abuse in my chart or whatever, but they still, like, refuse and will go to extreme lengths to give me anything that is, you know, even closely resembling a quote-unquote addictive substance to address my pain. And I know that that's a thing that happens to a lot of folks, especially, like, Black women, because we're, you know, across the board under-medicated because of the way that people perceive us. And it's fucked up because there's people that are, like, Oh, yeah, suffering. I think that it's still... I want to say, I mean, I could, this could be slightly off, but I was basically told by people who work in the medical industry that if it doesn't still persist, then up until recently, it's still the idea still persisted that Black people have a higher threshold for pain. Yeah. Like, this was, like, medical literature. Like, hey, you don't need to give them that that much morphine or whatever. They can deal with it. They're naturally, you know, inclined to be able to deal with this, like, high levels of pain. So, like you were saying, you know, basically we're under-medicated. Like, the treaters like crap. Yeah, and it's it's extremely, extremely dangerous. So if there are other Black folks listening uh, right now, one of the things that I use to, I guess, advocate for myself, and I try to spread this information as far and wide as I possibly can, if you are in a situation where a medical professional is going to deny you something that you're asking for, whether it's like for your pain or, you know, any type of ailment or suffering and they don't want to give it to you, you, what you do is you tell them, say, okay, then can you document in my chart that I requested this and you denied me? And usually the moment you say that to them, then they'll start to budge and be like, oh, well, maybe I'll just give you like a week's worth of this etc and so forth or if not if nothing else you're going to start to create a paper trail that's you know showing their implicit bias because that's kind of hard to like spot or see but if you're documenting a paper trail eventually you can say like hey this is why I'm suffering you guys keep not medicating me and it's fucked up you know and even if that's the other thing that drives me crazy mohawk is like 
even if we are quote unquote, you know, like suffering from addiction, you know, like, and we're in pain asking for these medications, it doesn't fucking matter. Like you're supposed, your their job is supposed to be to help this person not be in pain. Like if you're in fucking pain, you're right. in pain. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's lots of people out there who swear that you, no one needs opioids. And I'm just like, that's like how, how, it's, like ignorant can you be there are literally people with chronic pain and by chronic pain i don't mean they can just smoke weed yeah. to like relieve themselves of this pain like there are people with extremely like debilitative conditions yeah hell yeah that do actually require opioids there's just nothing as strong you know like as as much as i'd love to be like yeah everyone just use ketamine or everyone just use these psychedelics like sometimes there really are needs for other things mm. and yeah sometimes people do need fentanyl like they use that oh yeah like it as a use like not everyone needs it yeah but it doesn't make it bad because it has the potential to kill it does exactly what it needs to do when it's used in a non-illicit context hell yeah like and that's the other thing is like so if you know folks at home like there are so many different types of substances for a reason because like you keep saying you know some things work great for some people and some you know things work great for others and then I know for a lot of people who live with chronic pain myself included what works one day doesn't necessarily work the other and like the the thing that they're giving everybody now is gabapentin because it's you know quote unquote non-addictive it's yeah no I mean yeah it's (laughs) it's quote-unquote non-addictive and it really what it's about is it's not stigmatized yet and because it's not an opioid and it's it doesn't work for everybody and there's some days where it doesn't cut it for me either you know so yeah it's kind of funny that you say that like this is what they're giving people now because it's quote-unquote non-addictive or non-narcotic or whatever like it reminds me of this this ad that you can like find up on YouTube, and I think I had even reposted to my Instagram a few weeks ago. But like it was basically DXM. DXM, you know, was a cough depressant found in like some versions of like Nyquil or Robitussin or uh, Coracidin and things like that. And it's just funny because when they first kind of like discovered, oh, here's a non-narcotic cough medicine because they wanted to get people off of codeine. They're like, oh God, codeine's addicted. We fucked up. Let's get them, let's find something else. That these commercials were like, oh, this is non-narcotic. You're going to be fine. Like basically you can use this without any of the, any, you know, addiction or weird psychoactive, psychoactive effects. But anyone who's totally like robo trip before knows that dixon will get you fucked up yes it will <laughs> it totally fucking so it's just hilarious like seeing these old ads where it's like Whew, we found something that you know doesn't fuck get people all twisted and you know it'll relieve their cough it's like oh no if you if you drink enough of this you're totally going to be twisted totally. you know or if you if you take some of this and maybe chug down a beer or like smoke some weed you're definitely going to feel something weird like you know, they keep trying to create these things that are quote unquote non-addictive or non-problematic in some form. And I was like, look, people, most people who, you know, I just would use these substances because I was sick. I wasn't necessarily always looking for a high. But people who are just trying to medicate are just going to medicate. You know, people who are seeking out a high for whatever reason that is, are going to get that high. It doesn't matter if the substance is you know, like opioid or cannabis, like people will perform problematic relationships with anything if they have access to it. Like whatever it is that does it for them, you know, 
there are people who actually do have problematic relationships with cannabis. Oh, hell yeah. You know? And caffeine. There are people who can have, <laughs> yeah, and there are people who can have non-problematic relationships with things like methamphetamine. And, you know, everybody gasps, heroin. Oh my God, how do you use heroin or something like that recreationally? Well, if you don't have a desire to keep using it impulsively to like, you know, self-medicate in some other format, you know, then it's, I mean, I've totally, you know, used things like meth myself Mm -hmm. and I won't say it was the most fun drug ever, but it's like, I can see myself doing this again. If I felt like there, (laughs) if I felt like I needed to be up for 24 hours and doing something like meth is the go-to, you know, I can't get that from anything else, but if I really needed to, to push myself to that degree, Method is great for that, for example, you know, or in very, very low doses, it can be enjoyable for a lot of people. You know, it's just that when you start to... And it's in a lot of medications. It is. I mean, you know, different variations of amphetamines are in a lot of medications. You know, when I take something like Vyvanse, which I believe is uh, dextromethamphetamine, no, maybe that's... There's different types of amphetamine, but whichever one is Vyvanse might be Listex-amphetamine or something like that. Like, Vyvanse is like, when it kicks in, like, it feels like someone just put a boot in your ass. Like, you're like, woo, time to go. I'm I'm going to clean this whole apartment. I'm going to do this whole term paper. Like, you are like, it's like a get up and go. You feel it. You know, it's very reminiscent of things like methamphetamine. And there's, the whole, there's totally methamphetamine that can be prescribed in very, very specific situations, which is why it's Schedule 2 and not Schedule 1. But, you know, I just think that a lot of people really don't understand the drugs themselves, you yeah. know, how addiction works. You know, everything can be used. When, and when I say everything, I mean, like, most of the things that we know about, most things that we all, you know, are aware of in society, most of these things are, when they're used in a, in a way that's informed, they can be used very safely. Yeah. You know, like I said, even with things like Ibogaine, like, Ibogaine can be extremely beneficial for people. It's been, you know, hailed as this this psychedelic that is able to, you know, basically take a person who's got a severe substance abuse disorder and like hard reset that. And yes, that's been able to like basically get people to, you know, start over. Not saying that it's going to cure them of all problems and they'll never yeah. touch another opioid or whatever problematic you know, substance they had a problem with again, but from like the, you know, their mental perspective, their mental state, their, their, their cravings for the drug and that kind of thing are basically wiped out entirely. And because of that, it gives them a fresh, a fresh start. So now if they're able to reintegrate into society, you know, maybe remove a lot of those negative influences that might've gotten them there in the first place, they're able to like, you know, live a a problematic free life, you know, with substances. Yeah. And like, that sounds really um, close to one of the medications that I take, Mohawk. I take low-dose naltrexone. And so basically, like, naltrexone is uh, in higher doses. They use it to uh, treat, you know, folks who have opioid addiction, like, you know, problems or issues, I guess, to kind of, like, reboot their systems in high doses, and that's why when I pick up my prescription places and people read the bottle and they see that it says naltrexone or, nalox- or you know, naloxone or whatever, they totally give me dirty looks because it has that stigma attached to it. People are like, oh, she must be, you know, an opiate addict. 
But it's funny because, you know, like, whatever, even if that was the case, but like, that's not the case in my in my situation, I take it because it does have this ability to uh, reboot your system. And what it does is it sends your messages to your brain to activate all of its systems of healing every day. So for folks who have like, chronic illness and other things like that, that need really big time healing, like even cancer patients take it, you know, low dose naltrexone is, you know, one of the only medications that's like really, really fucking effective, you know, that's good to know, because I've heard of that, but I've never known anyone to use it. And so I'd never really like looked into what it was. Yeah. But yeah, but like I was just saying with the Ibogaine, like it does do that for a lot of people, but also it can kill you. You know, you can totally take this in the wrong dosage or with the wrong things in your system or whatever. And you can, you know, end up having an issue, like a major health issue or dying. And it's just like, like you know, it's just trying to illustrate that like there's things that can be extremely powerful, you know, healing tools or recreational tools, like whatever, like, I think that recreational use is very valid as long as it's not, you know, considered problematic where relationships are suffering or, you know, your own personal life is suffering in some kind of way. Yeah. So, you know, people are able to use these things in different contexts and get the most out of them. And it's not the type of drug that dictates that, you know, yes, people can totally use you know, the highly, like the the ones that people think are so evil, like meth, methamphetamine and heroin and this and that, like, yes, people can totally use those without developing the, the issue that we see, which is crippling addiction. And not even just like a, like a, an addiction that's kind of like functional, like a crippling addiction of like, now this person's going to be homeless and stealing and doing all this, these criminal activities to just get the drug. Like they're, they're like scum now, like all these things that create stigma. Yeah. And that's just not true for the majority of the drug using population. You know, as Professor Carl Hart, who did also speak at Horizons this weekend, like a lot of his work is around what causes addiction, what perpetuates addiction. And a lot of his research involves basically using people who, you know, consider themselves having an addiction to a substance and seeing how they respond to certain choices. And, you know, he would offer basically different increments of money or the choice of different increments of drugs. And the majority of the time people always take the money, you know, so even people who identified as addicts, you know, people with a severe substance use disorder where they compulsively use substances or, you know, chasing that high or whatever. Most of the time people really don't want the drugs. They just want something that's stable and sustainable things that help give them a quality of life. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, it's not, the drug that like dictates that because across multiple classes of drugs, whether it's cannabinoids or opioids or stimulants or whatever, the majority, like the, the percentage of people who actually become, you know, they are considered uh, addicted to these substances. is still like a 10 to, uh, a 10 to 15% margin, yeah. no matter what the drug is like out of all drug users, no matter what type of drug, the number of people who are considered addicted is still 10 to 15%. Yeah. So that, that could be cannabis, that can be caffeine, that can be alcohol, that can be benzos, that can be, you know, opioids and methamphetamine, all that stuff. Doesn't really matter which drug it is. 
it's roughly the same amount of people who will be addicted to it because it's not the drug itself. Yeah. You know, as you know, a lot of that research has started to show, it's other factors in this, these people's lives that drives them to have these types of behaviors. And that's what I want to really like drive home, like throughout this entire uh, show today is like, it has nothing to do with the drugs, my friends, like, and it, and this, this functions very similarly to like, lately, we've been talking about on social media, how like, you know, your depression, your anxiety, all of these things, like the root, any of the whys as to like, you know, what is causing this problematic thing in your life, this pervasive issue, all of that stuff is directly coordinated to capitalism and colonialism, you know, like, why are you depressed? And whatever reason it is, you can definitely trace it back to, you know, the abusive, you know, things that come with living in a capitalist society or living under colonialism. And I think the same thing is true of like drug use is, you know, it, becomes problematic because of, you know, living in a capitalist colonialist society, you know, it's just like, part of the cause and effect. And I really wish that, you know, folks have a lot of wounds around drug use, especially like if you're listening in right now, and you have like family history, where, you know, drug use was problematic, or, you know, maybe you had a parent that, you know, was, severely addicted and you know their life kind of turned upside down and it really impacted you as a kid like you know all of that stuff is really hard and if you look at all of the whys and the roots of all of that stuff like it it can still directly be uh correlated to capitalism caused this you know colonialism caused this that's what the problem is it's not the drug itself it's the like you were saying, it's the outside factors. There's other things that are causing, you know, an issue within the use of these substances. Right. And like I was saying before, you know, if it was just solely the drug, you know, a lot of these like campaigns, these like propaganda type campaigns of like telling us so, oh one hook in one hit in your hook. Stuff like that is just completely non scientific. You know, yes, I used the methamphetamine. I used it more than once, but it was by choice. I wasn't hooked on it. It got to a point where after a few uses, I realized the way that I was using it was starting to have more problems, you know, more cons than pros. And because of that, I was still able to rationalize, you know what? Uh, There might be some legitimacy to what people were saying about meth. I'm going to just stop. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) You know, and if it was, if it was literally one hit in your hooks, you know, like, I wouldn't have been able to just to like kind of walk away from that at my at my leisure, like you know, just by choice and ra- rationalize like, okay, I just I should just stop using this because it's you know I'm I'm not getting enough sleep, I'm not eating like I'm supposed to, yeah, you know, I'm I'm starting to like have other health issues that are concerning, you know, stuff like that. It's it's not that's not how these drugs work. Like yes, for people who are susceptible to you know addiction, it could be very addicting for them. Yeah. But that was not the case in my personal life, you know, even for certain drugs that I enjoyed thoroughly at some point when the relationship became problematic uh, in my life, I was able to say, you know, what, I've got to cut this back, whether it was alcohol or MDMA or any other psychedelics and stuff like that. Like they're really fun, you know, but they still have their risks. And when the pros or the concerts outweigh the pros for me, I was just like, you know, 
what, regardless of any like physical addictive nature of drugs, a lot of drugs are more psychological, like psychologically addicting than people tend to recognize. You know, like cocaine is actually highly psychological. You know, people assume that, oh, because what they see either in their, in society or in their friends groups or even with themselves that, oh, well, people who use cocaine are like compulsive users of cocaine. So that must mean that it's a highly addictive drug. And it's like, well, yeah, just like most things, like there's these Starbursts I'm eating right now that have sugar in it. Like it triggers the reward centers in our brain. Like I'm totally enjoying these Starbursts right now and I shouldn't have bought them last night. But when you like anything that that like, you know, triggers those parts of our brain, some of us want to keep seeing that out. Oh, hell yeah. But when I st- but when I stop eating these Starbursts, I'm not going to go into withdrawal. Right. Like I sure as hell hope not. I hope I haven't been eating that many, but I'm not going to go into withdrawal. And that doesn't that doesn't happen. And- you don't go into an observable withdrawal with cocaine either. So that what that actually means is that the addiction for a substance like cocaine is highly psychological. Yeah. That means that you just enjoy it so much that you, you know, basically willingly continue to use it. It's not that if you stop using it, your body is going to, you start going to start exhibiting like flu-like symptoms or getting sick or having seizures and all these other things that, you know, things like antidepressants or benzos or, you know, even alcohol might do, you know, and opioids. Like a lot of people start to get sick and sometimes a, a big motivation for doing it again is to avoid feeling that withdrawal and that sickness. But even if that doesn't happen, for some people, there's still that psychological addiction, that motivation to keep doing it because it's yeah. fun, you know? Yeah. And so there's just all these different types of drug use that people just aren't well educated about or, or just not informed about. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's just, there's just so much that can be said about the topic. You know, it's, it, I hope that we're able to at least, you know, say just enough yeah. to open people's minds up because it, it, it I just like to shock people with this information. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> Because people think they know everything, you know, like, oh, heroin's bad. And, I, and, you know, occasionally still run into people who are just like, swear that, you know, this is way better than this other thing. And I'm like, but it's irrelevant, really. Yeah. It really depends on the individual. It really depends on their relationship with that drug or how society creates this relationship with the drug. And, you know, well, these other factors that aren't the drug themselves. And when I say things like, oh, well, cocaine's not actually physically addicting. It's psychological. It, it, things like that blows people's minds. Or when people are like, oh, my God, you've done meth. And, like, you just willingly walk away from meth. He's like, yeah, I just, it, wasn't, it was all right. It wasn't that great. Like, you know, it's like, whatever. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, like, I think that's because you, you know, have a very, very decolonized perspective and approach and relationship to substances. And that's why exactly why I, you know, wanted you to have this conversation on this platform, because, you know, right. And I I can't say that I always have, you know, it took a lot of trial and error and making mistakes and doing dumb shit to to kind of like, almost come full circle in a way from being like, anti drug, you know, like, I totally believed all the dare stuff. And, whatever, until at some point I started to like slowly start to experiment with things. And then in that experimentation, I realized, oh, well, sometimes even, you know, even what I think is this drug is actually something else. What are these drugs? What do these drugs do? How do these things work? Why is it this way? You know, like I just started to like get into these 
you know, like start to go go deeper into the rabbit hole of like, how did we get here? What is this stuff? Why do we have it? Why is this bad? Yeah. Why, you know, do people respond to it this way? You know, like I would use mushrooms and be like, wow, you know, I feel a lot different after taking these mushrooms. Why is that? And I started to realize, oh, you know what? Mushrooms have been used in a very therapeutic way, in a very medicinal way for centuries, you know, it, it, throughout many cultures. And it's it's been really fun kind of like, adventure of sorts for me to be able to, you know, constantly be able to have my mind changed about that. Some people are just not willing to hear it, you know, so I'm hoping that this decolonized mindset makes people a little bit more open by default because they're less likely to take, you know, Western ideals as, you know, hard fact, like, oh, this is science. Oh, just there's two genders. That's the science. And I was like, well, that's the science of, you know, the colonized mindset you know, or that you need this drug instead of this drug or that all drugs are bad. That's the mindset of the, you know, that's the, that's the belief of the colonized mindset. So without that, I think it kind of helps people be a little bit more uh, receptive of the information. Yeah, And there's this like thing that people do, especially like today with like the quote unquote legalization of cannabis, you know, like I live in California, it's quote unquote legal here. (laughs) And the reason why I say that is because it, it really just feels like it's more regulated here, which has been a good and bad thing for folks who use cannabis and there's this thing in our culture especially around like folks who are more open-minded where they have this stigma of like it's okay if it's used for medicinal purposes but not for you know recreational or whatever and I, I it always reminds me of like energetically how in patriarchal society like you know from a religious standpoint like sex is okay as long as it's used like functionally but if you're out there just trying to have orgasms for fun then you're like inherently evil and so you know i just want folks who carry a similar perspective about whether it's cannabis or you know heroin or whatever it's the same thing like people have a right to uh, medicate themselves they have a right to seek pleasure they have a right to experiment and like all ultimately like as an anarchist since autonomy is like one of my um, valued you know principles like they also have a right to you know their own self-harm too like that's that's their choice and you know like who are we to you know like I don't know I guess criminalize or stigmatize folks for that, you know, as long as they are consenting to whatever their list of pros and cons looks like, that's cool. Where, you know, where it feels like it's okay to start to draw the line for me, at least anyways, is like, if it's harming other folks who are not consenting (laughs) to the harm it's creating, then it's like, okay, this is becoming like problematic, you know? Um, But other than that, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that's another thing with the, like I was, I think, I'm not sure if I mentioned it yet, but like we're, we've been calling it like psychedelics exceptionalism where like, you know, these things are way better than these other things. And these things are only valid if you're using them the quote unquote right way. And I'm so sick of hearing that because I think that, like I said, recreational use is totally legitimate. Like as long as it's not problematic, it's not hurting other people or yourself like fucking have fun. Like we all have our drinks or whatever, or smoke our weed. And sometimes it has nothing to do with 
how we're feeling or trying to lift our mood necessarily. It's just kind of like, hey, this is going to feel nice for a few hours. And that's what I'm trying to do right now. Because, you know, that's what you're allowed to fucking do. We can have fun sometimes. We don't have to always be like seeking this higher plane of consciousness or whatever, like hippie, whatever bullshit that people want to I don't know. It's like this huge, very yes. egotistical thing, even though they're talking about drugs that are supposed to, you know, dissolve the ego. It's, it's some of the most obnoxious people I've ever met in some cases that they think that you can only do it in this one specific way or else you're not using this medicine correctly. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's medicine, but also yeah. it's fun. Like, I'm not going to sit here and act like I don't just eat shrooms and go out into the streets of New York City and like, have a day because sometimes that's just what I want. I feel that. (laughs) Yes. Sometimes afterwards I also feel very uplifted, but at the same time, like the intention when doing that is to very much just have fun. Because if I wasn't trying to have fun, I could totally just do something like mushrooms, sit in my apartment and like listen to music and do these things that they do in therapeutic settings or clinical settings where they you know, just like put a blindfold on you, you take a high dose, you don't experience anything at all, but you come out of it feeling pretty good. And it's like, no, I want to go out and yeah. be goofy in New York City. Like it's New York City, no yeah. one's going to care. So it's very fun for me to be like, hey, I went on an adventure. Like I ate some mushrooms, I went to the botanical gardens, I played with some dogs, I rolled around in some grass, went to a museum, whatever. Oh, yeah. like, <laughs> you know, that can be well, valid and for like- people. And I, I did a... A webinar with uh, Zendo a few months ago. I think it was in July, maybe June. But uh, the the webinar was really focused around harm reduction and not necessarily how to use these drugs in some specific context. And in the harm reduction context, psychedelics use is like mostly like you know just be aware of your set and setting. You know, which is basically your mindset. Like what, where are you mentally when you're going into this, and your setting, which is your environment. Like what's around you? Are there a bunch of people? Are you by yourself? Are you in a, you know, an area that you may feel claustrophobic or out in the open? Is there lighting that might, you know, be helpful or uh, distressful in certain situations? So like, those are really the only things you have to think about when you're using a drug like that, just because that can change your mood and that can change your experience a lot. But even with those things in mind, you can totally still you know, eat the tab of acid and go experience a music festival if that's what you want to do. It doesn't dictate that you can only do this with like a shaman or, you know, you can only do this when you're trying to like sort out something in your life and you got to sit here and do it the specific way. And some people are really trying to like somehow squeeze an answer out of me that would tell them, instruct them how to use it. I'm like, do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. I'm not here to judge you, you know, if you feel like you really want to use this in a medicinal uh, and therapeutic context. Yeah. Yes, it does that. There's tons of information out there that that tells you that it will benefit you in this way. But there's no one way that that looks like. And it's not my, you know, it's not my role to tell people how to do any drug or not to use any drug. You know, if you're interested in taking it, just be safe. And here's some guidelines on how to be safe. Maybe you don't want to take, you know, a massive dose of this psychedelic yeah. Maybe you should start small and then next time cycle up a little bit more and more until you feel like you've had the breakthrough experience that you need. 
but stuff like that, like, you know, if you're being mindful of that, like, I have nothing else to impart oh, yeah. on you. Like, and that mindful piece, too, I, you know, I just would love for people to be m- mindful of, like, we, like, life is hard. <laughs> like, I don't know if anybody noticed, but this shit's, like, not easy. And, you know, especially the specific coordinates of, like, time and space that we're existing right now, you know, feels pretty dystopian. And so, you know, like whatever you got to do to enjoy yourself, to cope, to medicate, like whatever, like, I don't blame you and nobody should be blaming each other for, you know, how we are choosing to navigate this really intense human experience that we're having. Because like, I'm like, it's not always, oh, I don't know, sustainable to just be raw dog in reality all the time. Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> raw dog reality yeah basically like, I, and like uh, I think it was a quote from Frank Sinatra he said I'm for whatever gets you yeah. through the day or through the night or something of that sort and that's how yeah. I feel you know do what you gotta do to get yeah. through it you know and again, if you're not hurting anybody and you're not destroying your own self fucking have that beer that wine that shot that you know tab of acid that hit of molly whatever do it just you know be aware of yourself and your surroundings. Don't make it worse yeah. for you. You know, don't make it worse for others. Well, yeah, like, but I'm for whatever gets yeah, you through exactly. the Yeah, exactly. And like, especially like, don't make it worse for others. Like, don't harm other people. Like, I, I mean, I tend to have a pretty, I guess, radicalized perspective on autonomy and that, you know, like, if you are consciously choosing to harm yourself, like, that's your fucking choice too. Like, I you know, there was a woman who was very, uh, I guess, for lack of better terms, addicted or had a problematic relationship with wine and knew that it was going to eventually be the end of her. And sure enough, like it eventually was the end of her, but she made that conscious choice. Like, Every time, you know, she went to the doctor, like they were letting her know, like, you know, this is going to turn into this if you continue to have this kind of behavior, etc. And it was her choice, you know, like even with giving options for other other things that she could do, she she didn't choose that. And it, you know, that, you know, knowing about that experience um, really opened my eyes up to like what autonomy truly looks like. And, you know, it that person absolutely had a right to choose what quality of life meant to them. She wasn't hurting anybody else. She was just enjoying the fuck out of her wine until the end of her days. And like, you know, I respect that because it's not my body and she didn't harm anybody. Um, you know, right. So I don't know, people got to get off their judgments. And like, the other thing I wanted to talk to folks about Mohawk while I have you on here is a lot of folks aren't realizing what is really underneath their narratives around drug use and drug users. And, you know, if folks can check themselves when you're when something comes out of your mouth about, you know, somebody who's using drugs or you know, has a problem with problematic relationship. Like there's two things I'm usually hearing underneath it. And it's usually like, you know, I have a problematic relationship with poor people, or I have a problematic relationship with people of color. 
because a lot of like the stigma around drug use is definitely like coded in racism and definitely in capitalism too. Right. Yeah. A lot of times it's the mindset of like, oh, they're not doing anything with their lives or something like that. So, you know, it's very, very much capitalistic in the sense that like, oh, we're all supposed to be out here slaving away and never having any sort of enjoyment of anything. You know, you have to be productive constantly. That's very ableist in a way as well, because there's a lot of people who are disabled and have different needs and, and barriers to being able to work as hard as other people you know, in a sense of like something like physical labor or even like in mental health, you know, it's just uh, what we are doing to people in the workforce and just in society in general, it's just not everyone can rise up to that particular uh, standard. And so there's going to be a lot of judgment around that. And I know I've, I've been guilty of that as well sometimes, you know, especially when it's like someone's encroaching on my ability to be productive it's like you need you're like standing in the way of what I need to do like maybe you could sit around all day smoking weed in front of my apartment door that's your business but at the same time like you know like I've got to be able to do things you know get work done in my apartment because I work from home often like I work remote and if they're like blasting music outside and doing all these things they're very distracting like for me that just is aggravating and you know sometimes I'm sitting there thinking like do they not have jobs? Like, do they not have shit to be doing? Like, how are they just out here smoking weed, blasting music, playing video games, having phone conversations or whatever for all hours of the day or night? You know, sometimes I'm leaving home in the morning and coming back in the evening and they're still there. So there's definitely, you know, something to the root. You know, there's obviously something to unpack there where, yeah, I would love to be able to sit around and be fuck all, like, (laughs) to be honest. But I am not afforded that opportunity. You know, maybe I, I don't know if they have, a, they, they probably do have jobs. They just probably have a, something that has a very irregular schedule or maybe they all, you know, have family who support them or whatever. They, they have something that's different from mine and it's not for me to like really like judge or dictate how they operate. Although I'd love for them to get off yeah. of my stoop. But aside, <laughs> totally, <laughs> you know. Because they're definitely fasting in, in, in my area. But outside of that, like, they can do what they do. Yeah, you know? like, definitely. They're lucky to be able to not have to work as hard with certain with certain things like definitely. that. Definitely. Yeah, like, I, you know, like, on this show, we talk about, you know, like, all of us are learning. And, like, I love how you, you know, so openly, you know, said, like, I've been guilty of this, too. And, like, I will share, like, the reason why I'm saying that is because I've been guilty of it, too. You know, and I recognize that it came from a colonized mindset. You know, my frustration with the so-called, like, quote-unquote, tweakers down the street, you know, like, is really rooted in some other things. And, like, what is the other issues? You know, there's something beneath it, you know, and it's not necessarily – it's just a cop-out. Like, I'm, you know, stigmatizing their drug use because I'm angry at them for something specific, you know, I don't like that there's an increased police presence in my neighborhood because I'm like, what? what oh, yeah, yeah like I, I'm too. one of the only like people of color in my fucking neighborhood on my block. And like, I don't like that, you know, because of these white tweakers up the street, like there's helicopters around all the time sometimes. I'm like, and I get mad, you know, but I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, all right, like, but like, 
you know, Megan, let's not shame their drug use. What I'm really angry at is, you know, the police system. I'm, I'm angry at that, you know, because I want that gone and I want to be able to feel safe in my neighborhood. So, you know, again, like everything, everything right. traces back to the issue being colonialism, you know, and like living in a fucking police state. So it has nothing really to do with. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I was going to say there's definitely been lots of cases where because they're those kids, and they're probably not kids, I'm yeah. sure they're adults, but, you know, sometimes just like colloquially refer to people as kids. But, like, because they're there all the time and it's a nuisance for a lot of people, people are always calling the cops. I don't want those fuckers yeah. at my door. I don't want them here or asking me questions or doing anything. Like, have you even tried asking to end them to leave or whatever? Like, I know I haven't personally because I'm just like, whatever, yeah. they're doing their thing. Like, it's annoying, but, like, I don't really – it's, like, not escalating to a, a, a point where I feel like I need to really say anything. But, like, other people call, just yeah. really call the cops. And, like, we don't need them here because, first of all, they're not no. going to do shit. <laughs> and second of all, they're not going to make any of us feel safer. You know, the majority of my building are, like, Caribbean folks. So we're all people of color for the most part. Like, there are a handful of, you know, white residents or whatever. But the majority of people here are – of Caribbean descent or some other, you know, person of color, but because they're older, like a lot of the people who have lived here have lived here, like probably most of their lives because it's, it's just one of those places where people set up home and like they have their kids and their grandkids and all that. So it's because they're from the older generation and that older generation often buys into the, you know, colonial ideals or the, you know, capitalist ideals of like people need to be out working all the time, pulling their steps up themselves up by their bootstraps. Not, to, you know, a lot of people. Yeah. You know, obviously, even within our own communities are going to be judgmental of drug use because they associate drug use with like lack of productivity. And while that can be true, like, well, it's like and it, that's just not something to yeah. call the cops over. Like that just creates tension and you know, that that kind of stuff definitely is rooted in something else for them. I'm sure they've seen it. You know, they're always like, oh, these youth these days, they just be smoking the weed and doing all that. They're always complaining about things like that. And I'm like, you know, for me, I, there was a, a short moment in my life where I felt that way. And instead of, and then eventually I had to like, basically like, you know, question myself and be like, all right, well, this is very unproductive. Yeah. I can be super bitter about how other people, are engaging in their drug use. And for me, that was rooted in like, why the fuck aren't people, you know, why are people doing all this stuff? They're out here dying and all these things and creating, causing harm. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to educate about this because it's far more productive than bitching about it or calling cops or doing some stuff that's just going to perpetuate yeah. more harm, you know, to the individuals. Like, how do you, how is that helping anyone? So if you did call the cops in and they did decide to do something about it, what are they going to do? maybe arrest those those kids or, or whatever. Now what? Now they have a criminal record. Now they can't get a job. Now they can't vote. Now they can't yeah. do shit. Well, you know, and they might already have a record. So that just adds on to their inability to, to have any upward mobility in the society yeah. anyway. Maybe that's why they're sitting out on a stoop because they can't get a job. They can't even work for Postmates because they have a record. And why do they have a record? Because they like to smoke weed. You know, there's all these things that, you know, we really have to like consider, you know, like how, how this really just, it's, it's this police state, this criminalization of these things that are already rooted in, you know, racism and all these types of things, you know, to, to keep certain groups of people down, like we can't be. No. And that. so like, 
that's the other thing that a lot of folks don't know. And I'm wondering if you can speak to Mohawk is like, you know, they're um, one of the biggest stigmas in our, especially like in the U S here, besides the opioid crisis, quote unquote, (laughs) the other thing that, you know, is very popular to stigmatize is, you know, about like crack and quote unquote crack heads. And, you know, like in the eighties, like, the government like was the FBI like or the CIA straight up like admitted to you know releasing this drug into primarily like really poor black communities in hopes that it would create it would facilitate an environment that they created where people were really hard up or you know like whatever in the hopes that we would all just kill each other off you know and so you know it's it's the government has like created this monster and it's not necessarily like you, we've been saying all along this show, like it's not the drug specifically, it's the stuff around outside. It's, it's much more nuanced than that. And so, you know, if anything else, you know, if folks can get something out of listening to this Mohawk, like what do you think people can do to, I don't know, just be more, I guess radical in their in their approach, more decolonized in their approach to, you know, coexisting with drug users and, you know, aiding in harm reduction and things like that. Like cuz like right away I'm thinking of like don't ever call the cops like fucking ever, especially not on people of color because you're literally putting them in a life-threatening situation. Um which is never worth it you know but like what are some other things people can do Uh, and i want to know like as both you know users and also as allies to users like what are some things people can do you know to just be better in this whole thing i mean i've never really given it like a lot of thought but i mean it's a really (laughs) good question and i would say that you know like you said never call the cops but additionally on top of that like I think the biggest downfall when it comes to these types of things, like obviously like, you know, I'm involved in like drug uh, policy reform and all of that, but it's a very hard uphill battle to change drug policy. Like it's just going to last a while and it's lots of things are happening state by state, but from the federal level, there's still a lot in place. that's going to keep us down for a while. So knowing your rights, honestly, is the probably like the most, one of the most beneficial things you can do for yourself or help others understand. I'm really trying to get more familiar with the law itself and kind of what what tools we have to protect ourselves or just understanding the law enough. So, you, so basically, like, we all know we're engaging in illicit behavior. We all know there's consequences for it. But some people are just still not really aware with how, how things work and how, you know, how that could backfire if they're too loose in how they are utilizing their drugs and things of that nature. So, you know, these, edu- these avenues of educating people are yeah. really useful, you know, but I think more than anything, understanding their, their local laws, not just federal laws, like your local laws can really change how, you know, how something happens in your community and it could happen to you. Like for example, here in New York city, like I said earlier in the podcast with dance safe, we, can offer drug testing or sell the, these drug checking kits. Now, technically, in New York State, drug checking, like these little, they're like bottled chemicals that can give reactions to certain substances. 
these are not considered illegal federally, and also they're not considered illegal in any sense by the state. But that's very unique to only a handful of states. I think there's only 10 or 11 states that don't consider something like that paraphernalia. So, you know, if it's being classified as paraphernalia, like things like water bongs and measuring materials and all these things that are associated with drug use, you know, that can that can contain different penalties in different right. cities or states. You know, maybe that's just a fine, but or maybe it's like a year of drug time or, or yeah. uh, jail time or more. Who knows? There, it really depends on your state. So I would just tell people to, you know, be informed about the law, inform your neighbors about the law, invite, you know, I say neighbors in the sense of like, when you see people around, like, you know, it would just be like, hey, you know, you're sitting out here smoking this weed. I really wouldn't do that because these could be the consequences. You should maybe you know, find this other way to engage in this without putting yourself at risk, especially if someone's going to be an asshole and call the cops. But even outside of that, you know, you never know when someone who could be a cop is just roaming around. Like if you're, if you're so out and open about it, you could very easily get yourself in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even though things like that have been decriminalized here for a long time, they still find a way to, to, to fuck you over. So you know, just being informed about the legal consequences is a really, yeah. really big thing. Like, yes, obviously being in- informed about how you ingest the substances or what you ingest, like all that's good and great, but like, you Legally. know, as long as you're <laughs> yeah. alive, you've got to yeah. worry about the law. Yeah, we, we exist under <laughs> a system, whether we like it or not. And, you know, being as informed as possible is like a form of having power in that situation. I think you're right that that's like super important. And like, I like that you mentioned the drug testing kits, like, you know, super beneficial. It made me think of the other thing that I wish I could tell everyone in the world (laughs) is to learn about and like learn how to use and to carry Narcan on you. I know, Mohawk, you have experience using that. Would you mind, you know, telling people what Narcan is and why it's good to know how to use it and even to just like have it? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, Narcan is a brand name for naloxone, which is an opioid overdose reversing chemical. There's like zero risk to this, this, this chemical. Basically, all it does is block the opioid receptors. So if someone's having an opioid-based overdose, and I specify opioid because it won't work if someone's overdosing on any other substance, you know, benzos or dissociatives or, you know, whatever else, you know, alcohol, like it specifically, specifically acts on the opioid receptor. So because it blocks the opioid receptors, that means any drug that's in the opioid category, like heroin or fentanyl or a codeine or whatever, basically no longer has access to, you know, those, those receptors in their brain that, that create those effects. So if someone's overdosing, it's kind of like if you maybe imagine like a dam and like that dam is open and the water's flooding out and these are, you know, like your receptors in your brain that are kind of like now there's all this, this water gushing out. And when the dam goes up, it's blocking all of that. And so there's no longer water flooding all over the place. So at this point now, it's like reversing the effects of that, you know, it's starting to like release those chemicals from those receptors in the in way that starts to bring them back um, to consciousness. Good. And it could save somebody's to, life. Yes, exactly. That's what I was about to say. So it's important to have this with you because as many people have probably witnessed at some point in their life, 
People overdose on the streets. Why do people overdose on the streets? Because they have nowhere else to use their drugs. And because of this, you know, unless you're uh, in one of those rare areas that have some kind of safe injection facilities or something, you know, most people are using alone. A lot of people are using uh, something they've purchased illicitly. And because it's been purchased illicitly, there's no concept of the potency. There's no concept of potential adulterants in it. Could have things like fentanyl or whatever in it that, you know, are much more potent and things of that nature. So, you know, I, I actually had to revive someone about a month ago. I was just going out to get lunch. I was going to meet up with some friends to go skate. And I saw a woman just laying passed out on the street. And, you know, someone asked me, how did you know it was an opioid overdose? And to be honest, I didn't know. All I knew was that she was unresponsive. She was sitting, like it was right in the sunlight in the middle of the street at a bus stop. So it's like, maybe she was trying to catch a bus. Maybe she had gotten off a bus, but she was there. No one else was really helping. I was checking her pulse. She was barely breathing. Her eyes were going back in the back of her head. You know, I tried doing some of the checks that you're supposed to do is like rubbing your knuckles across like their rib cage or their sternum somewhere where it would be really uncomfortable. If they're unconscious, they're not going to be able to feel that. If you really pinch their earlobes, if they're not responding to that, they're definitely having some sort of, you know, medical issue. But she wasn't responding to any of that. And so I got, I happened to have Narcan in my car and Upon using that, you know, you just squirt it up the nose. There are shots that you can prepare, but I find that having the uh, nasal sprays are way, way easier for any novice person to use. You don't have to. I mean, I was very nervous doing this and I have to deal with people who are, you know, having some kind of overdose or, or, or difficult experience with drug use all the time. And it, it never gets easier, to be honest. And so when you're having, you're nervous, you have shaky hands and all this stuff, it's great to just have a nasal spray because you literally close one nostril, shove it up the other nostril and like wait for yeah. them to start breathing again. And that's all, that's all I had to do. She started to breathe again. I could start to see, you know, the, the color coming back into her face and all of that stuff until the paramedics arrived because oftentimes they still do need to go to oh, yeah. um, the hospital because- it will it will it will reverse the overdose but if they are overdosing on something really really potent for example like fentanyl then they yeah. will start to overdose again so it only works it takes about 3 minutes to kick in and it only works for about 30 minutes or so but if it's a very potent substance or something that's very long lasting like basically the naloxone will no longer be blocking those receptors and they will start to overdose again so but basically it gives them a window of time to be able to you know, get oxygen to their brain and have their organs functioning because obviously if you're not breathing and blood isn't circulating and all that kind of stuff, like you're going to, you can have permanent yeah. damage. Even if you do get revived at some point, if it's too late, you can have other organ damage, you know, or brain damage and all these things that yeah. those minutes matter. So, you know, it's really good to be able to, to have that on you. A lot of people ask me where they can get it. It really depends on where you live. In New York City, there's dozens of different places that you can go that are harm reduction uh, oriented to just you get a, you have a training done. They show you how to use it and then they'll give you free doses. And that's all you have to do. A lot of places it's available over the counter. I'm not aware of the prices, but, you know, it's still Hell good yeah. to be able to provide in some way. But I mean, I'm almost certain that every every at least major city has some form of harm reduction organization has some sort of training program or distribution program where you're able to to get this where it's accessible, you know, financially or, or whatever. But, you know, there's so many people 
who are impacted by opioids, even if they're not opioid users, because right now there's fentanyl in a lot of things, um, just because it's so potent at such minimal doses, you know, even accidental contamination could cause an overdose in someone who's using methamphetamine or cocaine or MDMA or whatever it gets contaminated into. So like having this on you for yourself or for others, you know, is important, especially because, I mean, I don't know, I value human life and I don't know anything about these people to be judgmental, you know, like, okay, they overdosed on drugs. Like they had shit luck today. I'm going to bring them back. Hell yeah. You know, (laughs) Um, I'm completely with you on that. And for some reason, I have like, I don't know about you, but I have an uncanny ability to be there, like right at the moment when somebody is at the like, brink of life or death. I don't know why, but I always stumble across those people. And so, you know, it can happen to anybody you know, learn how to use Narcan, get some Narcan while you're at it, you know, carry aspirin. I heard a story about somebody, you know, who ran to the corner store to get a man who was incapacitated on the sidewalk and get him some aspirin and she saved him from having a heart attack. And yeah, and (laughs) it's as easy as, you know, force feeding somebody some aspirin while they're unconscious. So aspirin, you know, Narcan, there's even those like CPR masks if you're... Yeah, definitely being able to, you know, resuscitate someone with, you know, assisted breathing like that. Because if she hadn't started breathing on her own... For example, that like having to do, you know, uh, CPR basically would have been the only other option until paramedics arrived, because if she hadn't been overdosing on opioids or just hadn't been breathing for so long that she wasn't able to start to breathe again on her own, then that's something that would have been able to save her in that situation. And honestly, not something I have had to do. I've never practiced it. I know how it works in yeah. theory. Like, you know, I've read all the instruction manuals and watched videos, but I've never had to do it. I've never tried on like a dummy or anything. So I don't actually know how it works or if I can do it right. But it's a it, super it's a good, good skill. skill. And if um, you are CPR certified, you're actually like legally uh, responsible for doing it unless they decline. Um, so, right. And if they're unconscious, like yeah, how would you yeah. know that? Yeah, you know? and it's like... Um, and, the, and the reason why... Yeah. I, sorry, I just wanted to quickly say before I forget. But the reason why I mentioned that naloxone is completely harmless is because, like I said, I didn't know she was actually overdosing on opioids. It was just a wild guess. I was just going to administer yeah. naloxone and see what happens. I could administer naloxone to myself right now. Nothing's going to happen because it's completely non-toxic. It's just all it does is block the opioid receptors. So you don't have to feel some hesitation in giving it to them. There's not going to be some weird interaction where if you guessed wrong, if you made the wrong assumption that now you're causing harm to them, like it really won't do anything. You just wasted naloxone and that was it. But if they happen to be overdosing or something else, or like I thought maybe she was having a heat stroke or something because she was laying in the sun on the ground collapsed. So if it was something else, maybe it wouldn't have revived her in that moment, but it wouldn't have done any harm, but it, you know, I just, I guess, luckily. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I just wanted to say that, to put that out there because a lot of people don't realize that naloxone is not like yeah. this drug that, you know, causes your your body to work differently in some other way. Like, no, it just blocks the receptors. That's all it does. 
And so that allows the body, the, the body's time to recover from the right. effects of the and, opioids. I mean, it's like similar to um, an EpiPen too. Like if you come across somebody who's unconscious and like, you know, the Narcan doesn't work and you've got an EpiPen on you, like use it. Like, because if I was unconscious on the ground, you know, there's a good chance that somebody's not going to know that I'm allergic to bees. You know, I could have been that person at the bus bus stop unconscious and, you know, it wouldn't have been an opioid overdose for me. It probably would have been an allergy situation. You know, people go into anaphylactic shock and they can't speak for themselves. And, you know, if it goes far enough, they'll be unconscious and, you know, injecting somebody with an EpiPen, at worst, if you quote unquote, do it wrong, you know, you're just gonna, um, it's just gonna be a little bit painful, but they're gonna thank you, like, you're not gonna hurt them. Epinephrine's not harmful. Neither is the naloxone, like, you know, and the same thing goes with like CPR, like, you know, Mohawk, I know you said, like, you're not uh, CPR certified. And I'm sure a lot of folks listening to this are like, well, damn, I'm not certified either. And it's like, I am but and I will tell you, like, yes, get certified. And yes, there is a protocol and it does change like every so often. However, if you don't know CPR, the basic things you need to know is, you know, clearing the airway of somebody's, you know, like throat and nose, seeing if there's any obstruction in there breathing into their airway and you're going to want to try and break ribs. So, I mean, like do those, do those (laughs) chest compressions. Like, yeah, I definitely understand that the, the, the uh, process, but yeah, it's definitely important for people to know, like, look, you, you do, you you might break some ribs and you do those chest compress, sorry, chest, totally, but it will save their life. Um, And, you know, yes, you might not always get that to be honest. I'm going to be straight up. Not everyone's going to thank you because they're going to come out of this being completely discombobulated, especially if it was an overdose situation. They're not going to know that you were reviving them from overdose or for some, some like sometimes they, you know, sometimes they just feel like, yep. oh, you just ruined my high or whatever, because because it's blocking those opioid receptors. Now they're basically going into withdrawal. So that's going to be very uncomfortable for them or, you know, very confusing for them. But, you know, yeah. you're doing the right thing. I mean, like, if some like you know, I I say basically, you know, hey, if you're using drugs in a public setting where I might find you overdosing, like I don't give a fuck, yep. <laughs> I'm gonna narcan you, you know. Like I think you forfeited your your like autonomy to be able to like go into a deep, you know, comatose state with opioids. Like if you look like you're you know having a medical emergency, you're overdosing, you're laying out on a bench in the subway station or whatever, like. If I'm not getting the feedback from you and I'm grinding my knuckles on your chest and pinching your ears and stuff, yep. I'm going to Narcan you. Yep. Like, sorry, yeah. bro. Like, <laughs> you know. It's like, I'm going to revive you because I'm trying to do the right thing. And like, they're going to be grouchy about it. But hey, yeah. you know what? You're not dead. At least now you can do this totally. again if you so choose. But you're not dead now. Like, sorry, you're uncomfortable, but apparently you went a little too far something went awry and you overdosed absolutely you You know i think that's a very real thing you know that people should know too no all of that's all of that's perfect okay so mohawk like this has been amazing you provided so much fucking information like this is an incredibly valuable uh resource for folks that are listening that are probably hearing you know, radicalized perspectives on drug use and harm reduction. It's probably a lot of folks 
first time even hearing the words harm reduction. And so, you know, I just want to thank you for all that you do in terms of, you know, educating and even just like living your life and coming up on random OD'd people in the street and like saving, saving asses, like, holy fuck, you know? Yeah, <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do, you know? I hope that someone would do something like that for me if I ended up in some situation, like, you know, passed out in some Hell public yeah. setting or whatever. Like, hey, look out look out for your fellow folks, you know? Like, especially, it was a woman of color on the ground out there. Like, I definitely was, you know, not gonna let her go either. You know, yeah. it's like, hey, we're all fucking struggling. We gotta help each other out. Hell yeah, and like, you know, I'd rather like, ask for forgiveness later, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, you're, you're gonna be fucking mad at me for saving your life? Right, that's cool. Exactly. I'll accept that. That's that's a that's a better <laughs> alternative than like, you know, I didn't do something, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, in any... Yeah, definitely would not want the, to live with that guilty conscience of like, I did nothing. Like, there were literally people tell, like discouraging me. They're like, oh, don't touch her bot- body or do anything because you know, you can get sued or some weird, like, like mis misunderstanding of the law. I'm like, no, we have Samaritan rights here. We have good Samaritan rights which or, or laws, which basically give protections to people yeah. trying to help save someone's life. And even the person who's a victim of, you know, something like an overdose, like she would not have been arrested or anything. She just would have gotten the medical yep. um, aid that she needed. Like people really, and again, that goes back to just understanding the laws like that. Yeah, like so everybody power, at home, you know? look up your local like Good Samaritan laws because that's true even of not even just of overdose, but like also, you know, for folks that are unresponsive and you're uh, in a situation where you're thinking about giving somebody CPR, chances are you're protected under Good Samaritan rights. Like you can touch them. You can start to give them CPR. If they become conscious and decline, then you got to back off but otherwise you're like good to go you know so anyway (laughs) this has been fucking awesome I'm so glad that you uh, were able to join me for this Mohawk um thank you so much for having me this is a great conversation yeah I'm just super stoked I can't wait to hear the feedback from folks and I know this is going to spark a lot of really good conversations that need to be had in the in the community so can you tell us where people can find you your work and how they can support you whether that's through like social media or if you have a website or like if they learn something from you listening to this show if there's a way that you know they'd like to pay you tip you in addition to of course like you're going to be paid to be on the show by me but um you know if they want to throw some extra cash at you for your labor you know if you want to drop your cash app your venmo whatever like what are the ways that people can get involved and support you Yeah. So on social media, um, on Facebook and Instagram, you can find me at Mohawk. That's M-O-H-A-W-K, the educator. And that's T-H-E-E-D-U-C-A-T-O-R, the educator. That is kind of where I'm most active, Instagram and and, uh, Facebook. A lot of posts are cross-posted to Facebook anyhow. And as far as financial apps, you can find me on uh, Cash App and Venmo at Mohawk Green, and that's green with an E on the end, G-R-E-E-N-E. And I do have a website that is mohawktheeducator.com. If for some reason you don't have any of those things, but you want to see what, what I'm up to or more about me or whatever, that is you know available as well and also does link out to my social media and, and kind of what's going on 
in my schedule and posting different articles and whatnot. So yeah, I mean, there's many ways that people can find me. If people have questions or want to contribute to my work or collaborate or whatever, I definitely encourage you all to reach out, but preferably <laughs> not until November, because I'll tell you right now that my October is clusterfucked and I certainly can't handle anything else at the moment, but I'd love to get in touch with folks, you know, who have questions or just ideas or whatever, you know, in the near future, because I'm always up for collaboration, you know, and finding more like-minded people to do this type of work with. So I don't have to deal with all these conflicting attitudes of, you know, clueless cis white man and all that kind of stuff all the time. It'd be great to have more people. <laughs> Hell yeah. Like, I'm just so glad you're out there, like taking up the space that you are in that, in that community. And I hope that more people follow suit because I'm sure like you inspire many people. So I would love to see like, I hope you get a chance to like come and educate or speak or whatever out here on the West Coast. I'd love to see you in the Bay Area doing your thing, kicking ass, because I know it's needed here too, even though, you know, I live in a pretty progressive area. But, you know, you'd be surprised people's at it. I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised, but, you know, to everybody else who's not from here, like you would think that like, oh, people here are pretty educated and knowledgeable about stuff like this. But a lot of folks are still living in the dark ages. So, you know, I've got mad respect for what you do. Anyway, well, thank you so much for being here again. And thank you to everybody at home who has been listening. Please don't forget to give us a good podcast review on iTunes or Google Play, Spotify, whatever you're listening to us from. And of course, share with your friends. Like, if you found something useful, share this with your friends. The more we spread this knowledge, you know, the more that we are able to change the narrative and, you know, create a revolution. And that's what this is all about. So until next time, y'all, thank you for listening. All right. Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Revolutionary Mystic Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider supporting it on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash revolutionarymystic. All of our guests are paid as part of a movement to hashtag actually support witches of color by creating financial equity. You can also check out the online Hoodoo Botanica book psychic readings, Take online classes, apply for the scholarship program for witches of color, join the free Facebook group, and watch witch tips on my YouTube channel by visiting revolutionarymystic.com. <laughs>